All content published by Your Brain on Science is solely the opinions of the authors and does not reflect the opinions of any parties affiliated with them or any additional third parties. Welcome back to Your Brain on Science. So we've been away for a few short weeks, but honestly, you know, it has felt like a really long time. I don't know if it's felt like that for you guys, um, but in the interim, the psychedelics world has kind of popped off and there's so many things that we can update you on. Uh, so we're here to talk about what's been happening, some of our most favorite exciting findings from the last few weeks. Um, and a little bit of like life updates. So Elena, what's been going on with you? <laughs> hey, yeah, I'm sure all of our listeners missed us. Um, I hope. <laughs> I feel like I haven't talked to you, Zarmine, forever. Um, but <laughs> no, life's been good. I've pretty much just been doing the lab stuff like always. Um, surgeries and behavior and training people and wishing things would be on time um <laughs> just lab stuff you know <laughs> but no I also saw some concerts um this past couple weeks so that's been fun making sure to also enjoy my summer while working through it so Good. anything exciting on your end um I mean, asking this question of a grad student, you always get the same dry ass answer. So I'm going to say the same thing. I've literally been in lab, <laughs> literally looking at the same data over and over and over and over and over again. And I'm at the point where I just don't want to touch my data. And maybe that is the hallmark of being a grad student to the point where you get like where you hate your data. Um, I don't hate it. It's really wonderful and fabulous. I'm just exhausted. Um, but, you know, doing the lab thing, I haven't done anything like fun like concert wise um I'm a big homebody honestly I enjoy being home but I do love concerts I need to get on that uh, but I have been at my cousin's wedding for the past two weekends because <laughs> if anyone knows anything about desi weddings about like Pakistani weddings they're four days long um at, at the minimum there's like so many other things that you can do so many other days that you can do but that's been a lot of fun um, but yeah, I have a goal of enjoying the summer. I'm a very big, like, I, I love the water. I love being on the water and being in Wisconsin oh, same. really hard. But we do have these two lakes, which is nice. But lake water. It's You're by the Great Lakes. It's like an ocean. Get real. I mean, yeah, but like the Less lakes that I'm near right now, the two little lakes, um, Nona and Mendota, they're like little and they're like lakey. And, you know, it's a little fast. <laughs> But go camping on Lake Michigan, you weird. Yeah, I literally have to get out. How about I've been in, in the Midwest for all these years and I haven't gotten out and like done anything? Oh well, that's because life is hard and life is hard. But anyway, anyway, <laughs> um, updates. I would also like to say happy Pride Month to everybody. Um, so June is Pride Month. So shout out to all my LGBTQIA plus creators, scientists, homies. Contributors. Um, yeah. Uh, we love you all. And let's get right into, you know, what we've missed on the science front. Ready? <laughs> Ready. <laughs> oh, wait. I have a funny side note because you just made me think about how Midwestern I talk. 
Oh my god, let's hear um, it. Um, but so I recently took like one of those like quizzes. It's like, what region do you talk like? Uh-huh. And one of the questions was like, uh, how do you pronounce crayon? And oh god. it was like, Say it again. Crayon, <laughs> but like crayon. <laughs> And so one of the, that was one of the questions and it was like, do you say it like crayon, like cranberry, or do you say it like crayon, or do you say it like crayon? I don't even know if that, they might've all sounded the same coming out of my mouth, to be honest, but. <laughs> no, they so, definitely sounded different, let's say. <laughs> but so it was funny and I laughed at myself and I was like, damn it, I say crayon, like cranberry juice. And then I was talking to my partner the other day and he was like, what are you talking about? What did you just say? And I was like, crayon. And he goes crayon and I was like <laughs> I don't want to talk about it so that's so funny you know that's a word coffee and orange are two big words that people with accents have a tough say 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 coffee coffee okay you say it like you're from Brooklyn so well I mean I am from Brooklyn no I know but you can like, hear it <laughs> uh, I like that I'm happy that we can identify ourselves yes yeah the accents but yeah, so that's a fun tidbit for our listeners. If, if there's any words that we absolutely butcher, that's why. So. Oh my God, yeah. It, uh, there's 100% words that I say that like make absolutely no sense because people have even told me, they were like, Zarmeen, I didn't know where you were from. And then we listened and then I figured it out. <laughs> yeah, I think my brother, the first episode he listened to, he's like, is your co-host from New York? Fabulous. <laughs> New yeah. York represent. Anyway. Anyway, it's we have fun here. So, okay. Um, getting into all of the amazing signs that's come out in the last month or so, um, we hope that you were able to read the blog posts about our recent, um, or not our recent papers, but our blog posts about two recent papers. Um, the first was one that was about 5-MeO-DMT and structural neuroplasticity in mice by the Quan group. And the second was a clinical trial of ketamine that was masked by surgical anesthesia in depressed patients. And that is by the Heifetz group. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you miss those, we encourage you to go check them out and read our thoughts on the papers. We try to have like a discussion about them. Um, super interesting, like great studies, both of them, and some good critical discussion in the in the blog post. So. Yeah, and uh, I mean, the latter paper, the one about uh, the ketamine and surgical anesthesia, it really brought out a lot of good conversations online, not only on like the meaning behind the results, uh, placebo or effective anesthesia, right, but also discussions of ethics and why are scientists even doing this, right? Um, And I just wanted to highlight a really good piece uh, by Shayla Love that um, she highlights the point of psychedelics um, that are not being able to be, nope, re-saying that. (laughs) So I just wanted to highlight real quick a piece that Shayla Love wrote um, where she highlights how psychedelics are not really able to be blinded Mm -hmm. and how the effects of an active dose of psychedelics in what some even would call microdoses um, are producing obvious effects that are completely distinguishable from placebo. So um, kind of the point with this paper was to induce anesthesia or some people at University of Madison, where you're from, Zarmin, are working mm-hmm. to cause retrograde amnesia following mm-hmm. psychedelics. So we're trying to gain information about whether this therapeutic benefit is truly due to the psychedelic journey itself. Um, but I encourage everyone to go read Shayla's article on Wired.com. We'll link it in the blog post. Yeah. So that question of, you know, is it purely biological or is it actually like the subjective experience is so important has been such a big one, right? Especially when you think about 
like all those pharma companies, because imagine you could make a psychedelic pill and take the trip out of it and people could take this pill and get better. Like that's what the world wants, right? A pill to me to a pill to save the world. Oh my god. Yeah, but one like, pill to rule them all. A, a pill to rule them all. <laughs> but you know, it's it's been a very interesting question and from the academic point of view as well. So these are some really, really great studies that are in the works and, and this paper that just came out, you know, provides some really, really good um, I think impetus for continuing study here. But Okay, these were not the only papers, you know, that have come out that we, we wrote these blog posts. Um, but there have been some other really, really great papers, which we're going to go ahead and summarize in a few quick sentences for you uh, today. And this is by no means an exhaustive list. There has been tons and tons of studies that have come out. And a lot of them have been interesting. These have just been the ones that we have sort of taken a deep dive into, right? Um, so let's get right into it. So I'm going to highlight one group uh, out of uh, Basel in Switzerland. So the Lake D group, um, they've been extremely busy these days with three publications within just the last month, which God, I wish that like <laughs> I could do that. That'd be amazing. <laughs> um, but two of them really focused on polypsychedelics uh, with one of them comparing the effects of MDMA and LSD co-administration, which is very, which is, you know, this is the first study that is looking at co-administration. And this is very relevant because this is like every raver's favorite thing to do is candy flip, right? Like <laughs> take, maybe take two psychedelics at once or take a psychedelic and then wait a little bit and then take another psychedelic, right? Um, so the large takeaway from this study was that the combination of 100 megs um, and 100, 100 megs, excuse me, of MDMA and 100 micrograms of LSD um, led to increases in physiological responses. So things like your heart rate, uh, pupil dilation, so on and so forth, and oxytocin levels more than LSD alone, which kind of makes sense, right? Because now mm -hmm. you're using two drugs at once. Um, but the safety profile, so, the, so how safe uh, LSD was, remained the same. It wasn't made better and it also wasn't made worse, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so while there may be some additive effects, right, and that's going to be physiological responses, um, it's not beneficial. It's not really going to lead to anything more significantly better than just taking LSD uh, alone. And the other big study that came out uh, was a study that looked that did a comparison of LSD, mescaline, and psilocybin which is really, really crazy, right? Um, and this study found that there is no evidence of qualitative differences. Um, so in the subjective experience, right, in the altered states of consciousness that were induced by 500 megs of mescaline, 100 micrograms of LSD, and 20 megs of psilocybin. Uh, I have a thought on this because I was, somebody just asked me if I had read this study. And I, I really find it interesting because, ask any person who's done psychedelics and we saw this too with the i think it was psilocybin lsd study mm -hmm. that people will say they're subjective they can tell like their subjective experience is very different across drugs mm -hmm. um and i was thinking about how that could definitely be the case in a naturalistic like environment but these yeah. are in healthy participants in lab settings so is the the fact that there's no differences in their states of consciousness or like in their subjective experience because of that controlled environment. Right. So and is this, 
this is what internal validity, right? Which is like, mm -hmm. are we actually studying what we think we're studying? Because also you bring up such a good point, Elena, they're using the altered states of consciousness questionnaire. And this is standard across everything. How do we know that that's capturing the different aspects of these different experiences, right? Like we have no idea. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so it's just something to think about that I was talking to somebody the other day at a Grateful Dead show, of course, so. <laughs> Very appropriate. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think this is, you know, this leads to that conversation of maybe we need more improved measures. And people are actively working on this. People are actively making more batteries to measure the, sub the subjective effects of these drugs. So mm -hmm. another, I think, great study that showed that although there are, rel you know, relevant differences in the duration of the action, um, and in, in sort of the changes in circulating oxytocin, which we find that mescaline and LSD increase the amount of circulating oxytocin, but not psilocybin. So clearly there's some biological differences, right. That are arising mm -hmm. in that subjective experience. We're not really seeing a difference. And then finally, the last study by the, the like D group that we're going to talk about, uh, was looking at the effects of IV intravenous DMT and healthy participants. So this study was basically a way to gauge the differing uh, dosing regimens of IV DMT uh, to potentially tailor the, psych uh, the psychedelic administration to patients with different individual needs. So sort of working towards that individualized approach, really looking at what um, one person might benefit from versus another. Um, and interestingly, the participants considered the effects of DMT less intense when the plasma levels of DMT rose sl more slowly, when there was a slower onset compared with the rapid increase uh, that would be produced by bolus administration. So just, you know, blasting the system with a large amount all at once. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that study was really interesting. I encourage everyone to go kind of look yeah. at it further and see the different uh, regimens that they did just for time's sake. We didn't want to, you know, go through all of them, but it is a very fascinating study. Yeah, for sure. Um, so we're sticking kind of with the theme of pharmacology, of subjective effects here, um, comparing different psychedelics. So jumping from um, that awesome group, there is a, another group from Maastricht. Is that how you say that? Maastricht, yeah. Yeah, okay. Uh, so there's another group from Maastricht that uh, recently did a study assessing the general subjective effects of uh, 2CB and psilocybin. And this is really cool because not many people have tried to characterize 2CB, which mm -hmm. is a phenethylamine uh, psychedelic. And it's probably one of the most widely used, like, quote unquote, research chems out there. Um, and so it's it's interesting that it hasn't been very well characterized in comparison with other psychedelics. So and you know uh, people use two C like on the streets too. Like it's a really big problem in some countries with like the safety of two C the way that it's synthesized. So the fact that this is like the first major study that we're looking at that brings this to our attention in in the context of psychedelics, I think really really important step. Yeah, definitely. All my homies love two CB. <laughs> so this study gave 20 migs of 2cb and 15 of psilocybin you have me saying migs now apparently oh do you say uh, how, how do you say it 20 milligrams oh you say milligrams i usually yeah, just say yeah. it I don't know. yeah i say megs that's so funny <laughs> i'm a megs gal oh my god well you say megs yeah i don't even say mig i, say mig. I would say like i say mig per kig 
Yeah, you're and weird. And he said Meg keg. <laughs> We're back to the... Tomato, tomato. Oh, my God. This is differences. Academic differences. Um, so, essentially, they gave 20 milligrams of TCB and 15 milligrams of psilocybin. And what they found was that TCB had a shorter duration of action, um, about six hours, compared to psilocybin, which is about eight hours. Mm-hmm. And they found that participants demonstrated um, kind of equal psychomotor slowing and spatial memory impairment under both compounds. Um, so kind of like, you know, I'm high vibes. Um, and that was compared to placebo. They used, um, three different, um, tasks. One is a spatial memory task. One is Tower of London task. And one is a digital symbol substitution test. Most of these, you just click stuff on a computer. Um, and then they found that neither compound produced empathogenic effects on the multifaceted empathy test or the MET. Mm-hmm. Um, thought that was interesting that they used um, the MET and not like the MEC, the mystical experience scale. Yeah. Um, but, you know, maybe follow up studies with different doses. They'll, they'll do something like that. Um, and they also found that there was no real differences in 2CB versus psilocybin on cardiovascular effects. Um, so interestingly, two structurally different classes of psychedelics, but seemingly producing similar um, effects, at least at these doses. So that's a pretty cool study looking at um, 2CB that hasn't been done yet. Yeah. Let's hope that more sort of comes out here with this paper and that sort of sets the tone for people wanting to look into it. So very cool. But now we're going to take a little bit of a different, uh, okay. So now we're going to move into a little bit of a different sort of realm. We're going to talk more about network-based explorations. Um, and there's this one study that, uh, that I really want to talk to you guys about, but I, before we do that, I want to point out that though we talk about psychedelics, well, we traditionally talk about psychedelics in the medical sense, right? Most studies are looking to understand the medical potential, harness the therapeutic potential of these drugs. Um, But they are also very useful tools, right? To probe various functions in the brain and the foremost being consciousness. Consciousness has... Consciousness research, consciousness neuroscience is a really, really big and bustling field, right? There is a lot of work to be done. There's a lot to be understood, though we do have a lot of theories and we do now understand a lot more. Psychedelics, obviously, as drugs being that highly affect the conscious experience, right, are a really, really useful tool in helping us understand uh, consciousness. So the study that I'm going to talk to you about is from George Mashur's group uh, over at the University of Michigan. Um, And what they did was they compared classical and non-classical psychedelics um, in in their network changes and the changes that they induce um, brain-wide. So uh, what happened? (laughs) Um, So in this paper, they used resting state connectivity. So the participant is at rest. They're not doing anything. They're not engaging in any task. They used fMRI to determine how connected the brain is within predefined brain networks and between predefined brain networks after the administration of various classical. um, So these are going to be your serotonergic psychedelics and non-classical psychedelics, which are not acting uh, through the serotonin system. So what they used was they used LSD. That's going to be our classical psychedelics nitrous oxide, which is laughing gas, um, and ketamine, which we are very familiar with, an NMDAR antagonist. Um, And they found that there was reduced within-network functional connectivity. So within a network, um, the nodes were less connected, 
but there was enhanced between network uh, functional connectivity. So though within a network, there's less uh, talking, um, these networks themselves are talking to each other more. Um, and interestingly, uh, the areas in which they found this enhanced between network functional connectivity have been shown to mediate certain aspects of the awake and subjective experience. They've been implicated um, highly in the functioning of this aspect of consciousness. So this tells us a little bit about how these drugs might be acting, right? And this was whether or not these drugs were classical or non-classical. This was across all three of those drugs that they looked at. Um, so I think super, super cool. And I think this provides us with, you know, a little bit of a unique take on psychedelics because yes, they're medicinal. Yes, they could be therapeutic, but they can also be used as a tool to further investigation in other fields, specifically consciousness. Uh, so I think very interesting for us to all uh, keep in mind there. Yes, definitely. And so when this came out, um, I, I think I originally saw it as like a preprint and then it just came out again. Mm -hmm. um, and I wanted to just highlight that they found, you know, the similarities between LSD, ketamine and nitrous. And they also use propofol, um, which is an anesthetic as a control. And it um, only had like one overlapping um, brain region. So or brain network thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I just thought that was interesting also in the context of the study that just came out with ketamine and people were like, oh, well, propofol can be potentially therapeutic. It can be potentially like doing the same thing as like ketamine. And, and this paper kind of shows like, well, not really. So just something to think about. And, and I also laugh because I published a PSR article, like a couple, like oh, a while ago now, like years <laughs> ago. Wow. That's weird. Um, but I'm talking about if nitrous oxide was a psychedelic or not, and everyone yelled at me because I said it wasn't. So maybe I need to go back and rethink my my stance. No, 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 no. It's you know the... no, it's just non-classical, right? It's exactly. like I think a lot of drugs can produce psychedelic-like effects without being considered like a, a psychedelic. Like you know, even like we mentioned in our THC our cannabis um, episode, like it can have similar effects, but doesn't mean that it's the same. Exactly. And our understanding of what classical, well, not exactly what classical is, those are pretty well defined, but our understanding of these various classes of drugs is also evolving, right? And we are beginning to understand a little bit more exactly the mechanistic effects and the subjective effects of all of these drugs. So I think this is also a very, you know, evolving conversation and something that people will talk about and bring up. So all the naysayers, you know, do your own research and <laughs> get back to us. <laughs> Yeah, it's all good. Um, okay, so we're going to switch gears here because we're speeding through this. Um, so the last two studies we wanted to highlight that are um, with people um, focus on two other aspects. So the first is a study from a guest that we actually had on the podcast last season, mm -hmm. um, Dr. Jacob Aday. And his recent paper is, it's a preprint, but it looks at um, increases in aesthetic experience following ayahuasca use. Um, so it's an open label naturalistic study, which means, you know, it's not a controlled clinical trial, but, um, there's always been anecdotal links between, you know, psychedelics and art and aesthetics and creativity. And so this paper is interesting because it's aiming to quantify that somehow. So they had participants complete an aesthetic experience questionnaire one week before, one week after, and one month after attending an ayahuasca retreat. 
just so they, cool by the yeah. way an aesthetic experience questionnaire Sorry. i know right <laughs> um and what they found is i think pretty fascinating um so they find that these aeq scores increase at both the follow-ups um so one week after and one month after compared to baseline um, so one week before, mm-hmm. but these measures, um, and the measures of mystical type experiences, awe and ego dissolution were not related to the changes in aesthetic experience. Mm, very. Oh, so, that's fascinating to me that, you know, this mystical experience, this, this, um, thing that people can't like quantify or put into words, um, you'd think that they could put it into like their art or their aesthetic, like, you know, experience, but interestingly, it was not um related so obviously follow-ups um, more studies need to be done with that but I just thought that was a really cool finding very cool we might need to have Dr. Aday back because <laughs> super interesting yeah so now uh, I'm going to talk about our last human-based clinical paper, um, one that we find just as important as all the others. It was titled Controlled Conditions in Randomized Trials of Psychedelics and Action Systematic Review. This is out of Hopkins. Um, so some background We know that psychedelic research clinical trials underuse elements that could improve uh, things like quality, right? Such as blinding assessment, um, having active drug controls. We just talked about this a few seconds ago um, and minimal support, uh, support controls. Many studies also we find insufficiently report details of blinding integrity assessment um, and non-drug control conditions. Um, in this paper, there was 86 unique studies uh, that they, they reviewed, um, and of studies with a drug control condition, there was 80 of them, 49 use an inert placebo uh, control, which is a placebo that has no effects, right? 16 use an active comparator, and 12 used both, and three used only different uh, psychedelic doses as a control. So there is a gamut of different types of blinding uh, procedures that you can attempts attempt right yeah <laughs> attempt. great word right attempt um, only three of the 21 therapeutic trials compared uh, the use of psychological support to a minimally supportive condition which is also very important again because we talk about is it just the biological effect is it the psychological effect is it the Both, therapy. Right? Yeah. Is it the therapy? Is this all, is it all in conjunction? That's really, really important. So, you know, also another really important to thing to look at. Um, the majority of these studies were blinded though. Only 14 included a blinding assessment, which. <laughs> which so how can you even say that they're blinded? Yeah. Which how do you say that they're even blinded? Right. Um, all I can do is laugh at that. Ha ha ha. Um, and only eight of these 14 studies um, assess participants blinding, right? So they actually asked them, um, like, hey, what do you think you got, right? Um, and <laughs> the understatement of, of the century is we need to do better. <laughs> if we want to understand what is happening with psychedelics. There are so many confounding factors, right? So many things that we need to tease apart. And, you know, everyone's doing their part to make this clearer, but I think we need some clear something clear and clear cut when we talk about blinding don't say you're doing a randomized blinded controlled trial if you're not even assessing blinding yeah because you can't just assume everyone's blinded yeah psychedelics you can't just do that exactly go read measure it it takes it takes literally one survey like just just measure it please A a few seconds 
Um, that is our gripe with all of this, but some, some very, 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 very interesting, I think, review um, nonetheless. So please, everyone go read it um, and actively think about it. Give us your ideas because, you know, we need more ideas on, in, in the realm of blinding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so switching gears now to our final couple papers, um, we're going to go preclinical. So you guys know us. We're preclinical neuroscientists, pharmacologists, gals. Um, <laughs> so... Out of all the papers we've mentioned, they've all been done in humans. So there's been a couple preclinical ones that are, they're always like less popular, (laughs) but they're still important. So the first one is a study looking at psilocybin and alcohol in rats. Um, So all the studies that I've seen so far, I think there's about three different groups that have been looking at psychedelics um, and alcohol use in rodent models. Um, they've mainly used mice, um, but they've found that psychedelics disrupt drinking behavior and condition place preference with alcohol in mice, uh, with some reported sex differences. Mm-hmm. But this study uses rats and found that psilocybin did not reduce alcohol consumption and it did not prevent increased alcohol drinking after a period of forced abstinence mm-hmm. and, um, something that we call Q induced reinstatement of alcohol seeking. So a Q induced, uh, reinstatement is essentially when you train the animals to use a drug or to self-administer a drug, and then you have them stop doing it and you wait till they um, have an extinction of that behavior. And then you reinduce that um, seeking of the drug or that administration of the drug by using a light cue or like a food cue or a like lower dose of the drug. So they're using a cue induced reinstatement mm. and they found um, no effect of psilocybin on that. Yeah. Um, but what's interesting is that despite the lack of effect reported in like the drug seeking and the alcohol drinking, they... Uh, did a memory retrieval consolidate or re- a memory retrieval recon consolidation paradigm um, where psilocybin attenuated the resumption of alcohol seeking. So I need to dive deeper into this. Um, but it sounds like while the active drinking portion is not affected by psilocybin, um, the resuming of alcohol seeking was. Um, so it could yeah. be possible that psychedelics might have an effect on a relapse related behavior. And I really hope that's true because relapse related behaviors are part of my dissertation. <laughs> with psychedelics. And, and this is interesting, right? Because that huge study from NYU, the Bogenschutz group um, in humans, we find that psilocybin significantly reduced drinking days and significantly reduced binge drinking and drinking mm-hmm. over time, right? Which is not what we see here. Here, rather, we're seeing effects yeah. on relapse-related behaviors. So this, you know, might highlight why rodent studies, preclinical studies are a little bit, you know, difficult because they we do see some digression and, and there's a lot of reasons for that, but just yeah. something really interesting to keep in mind. I do, well, I'm very hopeful that this, you're going to find something really awesome <laughs> for your dissertation because there's a lot here, right? Yeah. Thanks. I know I'm, I'm focusing <laughs> not on, not on alcohol, but on opioids, but yeah. we'll see. Um, I would also highlight that this, this study versus the other alcohol studies with mice also highlights just the species difference. Like not all rodents are created the same. It could have been the strain that they're using. It could have been, you know, a myriad of things. So I think that that's why we need replication and to be consistent with the animal models that we're using. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so then the last 
preclinical and last study of our little synopsis here is a study by, again, the, the Heifetz lab. Um, and this was assessing environmental and drug-specific brain networks. I actually love this paper. I did it for my journal club and lab um, as a preprint, and it just got accepted. So that's exciting. Um, but it really tries to get at the set and setting aspect of psychedelics uh, using an animal model. Mm-hmm. So they take CFOS staining. So CFOS is a gene marker that basically increases with everything. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, not increases, but it becomes you can it becomes active or inactive or increase or decrease depending on like stress or drugs or different behaviors. Um, so basically, if you can. Um, use it as a marker of brain activity, you can map the activity increases and decreases in the brain. And so that's exactly what they do in this paper with a really sophisticated and cool method that is way too much to get into right now. Mm -hmm. Um, But they look at CFOS activity following environmental enrichment or psilocybin in mice. And they find main effects of context in psilocybin were robust, widespread, and had reorganized network architecture. So basically, um, within the context of the environmental enrichment group and then the psilocybin group, they had distinct neural connectivity and, um, I guess not connectivity, but they had um, increased like CFOSs or decreases in CFOS. Activity, yeah. So it yeah, would be a of activity, yeah. right, right. Um, Whereas when you looked at the context psilocybin interactions, there were very few. Um, So that's suggesting that specific brain regions are required for context versus psilocybin um, with very little overlap. So that is pretty cool. Very interesting, especially when we consider, you know, the set and setting aspect of it, right? That's how you started that, that was sort of the impetus for this paper. People are like, well, you can't do rodent models because like they are in cages and, and what is their environment? Like, what is the subjective? Like, what are they getting out of it? Blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. Um, but I think a very interesting foray into the world of set and setting uh, preclinically. Yeah. And we're gonna, I'm going to talk um, with some guests a little bit more about like mouse environment and what we can measure in mice um, that's a little more translational or not in a couple episodes. So that'll be yeah. fun. All right. Oh my God. That was, we, we said that we're going to talk about these in like a few sentences. And I think we talked to you about these papers in like a few paragraphs. So that's what you get from us. Um, (laughs) Thank you guys for tuning in, uh, tuning in with us today. If you did Um, and listening to our life updates and a little bit of the science breakdown on what you missed. If you guys liked any of these papers and want us to go more in depth, please let us know. We'd love to hear from you all. Um, And please remember to tune in every Tuesday at 4 p.m., like always, for our new episodes for this new season. We have, oh my God, so many crazy guests. We have some really big names in sports, right? We're going to have an ongoing psychedelics and sports series, um, some big names in the psychedelics field, um, and just some really, really amazing episodes in general. Uh, So as always, please like, share, and subscribe. Um, Visit our website, visit our YouTube, visit our Twitter, visit our Insta. um, And please let us know if you want the PDF of any of the articles that we linked on um, our blog. Uh, And then check out today's list of articles on our website, psychedelicbrainscience.com. Thank you, guys. And while you're on our website, go check out our Meet the Team page that we've updated with our new featured artist of season three, Charlie Hosfeld. Uh, So if you liked our intro and outro music, please go check out his SoundCloud and his Instagram um, and let us know your thoughts. Thanks for listening.